Anglo-Australian author D.B.C. Pierre spent his youth in Mexico before falling into a spiral of drugs, debt and delinquency. In 2003, he shocked the world by winning the prestigious Booker Prize with his debut novel, Vernon God Little. Now living in Ireland, Pierre credits Mexico with having fueled both his creativity and his self-destructive past. My name is Stephen Woodman. And I'm Duncan Tucker. You're listening to Viva Mexico, a podcast from Guadalajara offering news and views in the age of Trump. This week we'll be speaking to author DBC Pierre about his love of Mexico and how it's influenced his writing. We'll also be chatting to the historian Andrew Paxman about his new biography of William Jenkins, an American entrepreneur who became the richest man in Mexico. But first, Steve, what did you make of Donald Trump's meeting with President Enrique Peña Nieto at the G20 today? It was the first time they've met in person since Trump became president. And it didn't go too well for Peña Nieto, did it? Well, Trump was asked by a reporter whether Mexico would pay for the war. And he said, absolutely, they will pay for the war in front of Enrique Peña Nieto, the Mexican president. There was a lot of noise, though, in the room and there were various reporters shouting out questions. So it's unclear whether Peña Nieto heard clearly his response and um, it's been described as it was a humiliating encounter, which it may be in some ways, but they've said that they uh, weren't aware of this of this response. So there was no opportunity to challenge him on it. Yeah, we know Peña Nieto's English isn't great, so it wouldn't surprise me if he didn't actually hear or understand the comment because it was it was quite quiet on the recording, wasn't it? Yeah. So we also saw that Donald Trump came out with a, in a pre-taped video where he said that the, the United States wanted total renegotiation of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, or they would end the treaty forever, which is uh, quite a big threat ahead of the, the negotiations which are planned for, I think, next month. How How significant is that, Steve? Well, it is a return to his previous posture on NAFTA, which he had throughout the campaign. And even after the campaign, he was saying that they need a complete overhaul or even that they were going to scrap it. But recently, we've seen the Trump administration moderate its tone. And there's been some suggestion that the US administration understands that Mexico is an important partner. So this is more of a return to the previous language and that the previous threatening posture that Trump had when it came to NAFTA. So it could be quite significant. It's difficult to tell, though, with President Trump, whether it's just bluster. Yeah, it doesn't seem to necessarily reflect a change in the policy of the or the strategy of the White House itself. It just seems to be whatever it occurs to Trump to say in any given time or day or time, I think. Um, yeah. One thing we know about President Trump is he's not consistent. Yeah. Moving on to our first interview, we spoke to the Booker Prize winning novelist D.B.C. Pierre about his background in Mexico. I was very lucky to uh, wind up in Mexico when I was seven years old. My father went there to work and um, he was there pretty much until his death, uh, Mm. Uh, quite some years later, so I was there from seven, well into my twenties, and you know, without question, that was the definitive uh, forming experience of my life, both in uh, in the best possible way, and and in terms of uh, many foibles and what have you. But it gave me, I think, uh, an awful lot of depth that I wouldn't have had of depth of perception and of. Um, colour and uh, uh, wideness of taste, if you like, of variety. So it was extremely important. There was a sense when I was a kid that 
that this country, the whole country, was a roll of the dice and that you had to roll it every day. People around me, uh, everybody was on a, was sitting on a volcano of, of different kind of uh, troubles. I mean, even just the plumber, and you will know this being there, even the plumber who is supposed to turn up at three o'clock on Tuesday and doesn't turn up but because he had a funeral and then he doesn't turn up the next week and it's because he had another funeral and finally he gets confused and he, you know, first his aunt died and then he says she died again and people really pushing the boat out of, of you know, extending reality in, you know, in so many different ways and, and pushing the envelope and there was a real sense of that in every respect that, that uh, you could get away with with much more. And it's a country, of course, where if you're privileged, if you're in the, the privileged class, you can get away with much more because uh, not many people will, will argue with you, which is uh, a shame. But um, anyway, I took to that like a duck to water. I came out of there with an extraordinary uh, capability for bullshit in the real depths of technique that, that the great leaders use. Stuff like you know, people will much more easily believe a massive lie, and that, of course, that was kicked out of me at, at, uh, in no uncertain terms. But um, at the time, it was like an art form, yeah. and that's why the era of Trump's kind of interesting because he, he is doing that uh, to the world in general now, and it's um, you know, we'll see what happens. So, Duncan, a lot of famous beat writers engaged in some pretty reckless activity in Mexico. Uh, two examples are William Burroughs, who accidentally shot his wife in Mexico City, and Neil Cassidy, who was the inspiration for the hero of Jack Kerouac's On the Road. He froze to death after passing out drunk on some train tracks in San Miguel de Allende. What do you think it is about Mexico that brings this wild side out of people who come here? I think there's a sense among foreigners that Mexico's a kind of place with no boundaries where you can do whatever you want. And I think that goes back to the prohibition when a lot of Americans would come here to drink alcohol. Um, we've since seen Americans and other foreigners coming here to, to take drugs, especially the Beats would engage in drugs like peyote there sacred uh, hallucinogenic cactus which the indigenous America people use and um, you also see it nowadays with spring breakers for example Americans who, who can't drink legally in the United States until they're 21 years old they come down here underage to places like uh, Los Cabos or Cancun and kind of lose control and it's almost seen as like a, a rite of passage for young people and I think they just see Mexico as a place where there's no real sense of uh, of boundaries and of law and they can just do whatever they want here. We asked Pierre whether he'd like to write about Mexico again in the future and why the country is so inspiring for artists. The first novel was a down payment and was just a, you know, was my little tribute uh, from the mind of a teenager looking down on, on what was good about the place in the mind. But I would love to do that. I'm just treating it very, very, you know, I want to be a better writer before uh, I take that on. That would be very special. And I'm also aware in the same, for the same reason that I don't write Irish novels, uh, despite having spent a lot of time now in Ireland, is that um, the Irish do it too well. And likewise with Mexico, it'd be great to do a Malcolm Lowry uh, or, or some such with an expat's experience in it. But uh, 
um, I'm very leery of pretending to set out the country's own views and its people's set out its people's lives and not from there so I'm sort of um, honing my skills and hopefully we'll be able to write something big about it in the future it's a very very special place it's got the the life of almost six countries put together there's something also about Mexico I think which is the makes it the most fascinating and I hesitate to say the most important because I don't want to insult the rest of Central and South America, of course, but it's the last stop before the big border with with the world's most important country. And so it's like the it's like the cork in the neck of a bottle. And um, it, something in it, it probably always has been in some way like that. I mean, the, the cultures were bigger, the cultures were the most impressive of the continent going back in history and there's just um, uh, you know that's where the bubbles of, of that continent seem to really uh, boil up to the surface and I guess it makes it attractive yeah. Steve you mentioned uh, Malcolm Lowry there and a, a lot of other famous novelists like Jack Kerouac and uh, Graham Greene have also used Mexico as a setting for their books why do you think it's such an inspiring place for works of literature? Well, sometimes it's just a simple plot device and it's somewhere where characters can escape to. But the border with the US appears again and again in literature and film as a dangerous place to be and it's contrasted with the US. But also within Mexico, you have an incredible mixture of cultures. So you can see huge variety and a great amount of contrast in the country. Billionaires in Mexico City are only a few hours drive from people whose way of life is closer to their pre-Columbian ancestors. So in that sense, it's no surprise that it's a very inspiring place for writers. I think we've also seen in politics, though, Trump has used Mexico as a setting throughout his campaign and his presidency. Um, he's characterised as a country filled with bad hombres, you know, invading rapists and drug traffickers. So it served there as a contrast to the US and it's served a useful political purpose. He's managed to retell the story of Mexico and the United States as instead of an ally being a trade competitor and a bringer of conflict to the country. Yeah, just going back to your previous point, I think Mexico is just so full of life and energy and it's got this really vibrant culture, great diversity of natural landscapes and these traces of ancient civilizations like the Aztecs and the Mayans. And I think if you put all that together, and if, if you're an artist, I think it's hard not to be inspired by it. This week, we also spoke to the British historian Andrew Paxman about his new biography of William Jenkins, an American entrepreneur who became the gringo that Mexicans loved to hate long before Donald Trump showed up. We asked Andrew how significant a figure Jenkins was in 20th century Mexico and how he almost sparked a war with the United States. Uh, William Jenkins was a Tennessee farm boy who grew up in the era of the robber barons in the late 19th century in the United States. And through uh, a series of investments, he becomes the richest businessman in Mexico by the 1950s. He had a reputation for being a, a pretty uh, hard-nosed businessman. That's, you, you might say, his, the first controversy about Jenkins. Uh, the second is that at the end of the revolution in 1919, he was kidnapped by Zapatista rebels. And the, um, the U.S. made a big stink about how Americans were being kidnapped. And in fact, there were a number of Americans kidnapped towards the end of the revolution. 
And after the First World War ended, there was talk about sending troops to Mexico, uh, to use the language of the day, to put Mexico's house in order. So this became a major international dispute in 1919, and the U.S. came close to sending troops into Mexico to, you know, to launch a, an invasion and uh, install a government favorable to its interests. This didn't happen. The, the incident was, was diffused in the end. But uh, Jenkins came out of that incident with an image of, of someone who was a, a troublemaker, uh, someone who had uh, the U.S. government on his side and someone who, whom it was better not to cross. So, Steve, Mexico has always been very sensitive about its sovereignty. But Donald Trump has mentioned the possibility of sending US troops south of the border to combat the drug cartels. And this week we had John Kelly, the head of Homeland Security, accompany the Mexican army to see the eradication of opium poppy fields in the mountains of Guerrero. He spoke of continuing the fight against illegal drugs. But this isn't really a strategy that's been working, is it? It's not a strategy that has been working. There's very little evidence that crop eradication programmes cut cartel profits or have an impact on drug use in the United States, which has has been growing, especially heroin use has become a real problem in the United States. But even advocates of eradication know that they can't eliminate opium farming completely. What they're really looking to do with heroin is to make it more of a scarce product And in that way, they're hoping to make it more expensive and then less attractive. But the markup from an opium crop grown in Guerrero in Mexico to heroin sold in New York is so incredibly high that destroying the crops in Mexico just has a very tiny impact on the final price. So it really isn't effective at all. Yeah, I just think this whole militarised approach to the war on drugs needs a complete rethink. Over 200,000 people have now been killed or disappeared in just over 10 years, and the violence is only getting worse at the moment. May was the most violent month in over 20 years, and 2017 is well on course to be the worst year on record in Mexico for homicides. So I think it's, I don't think it's helpful to have the US and Mexico pressing on with a strategy that's brought chaos to Mexico and completely failed to stop the flow of drugs. Going back to Andrew Paxman's book for a minute, we asked him if there were any similarities between the way that William Jenkins was perceived in Mexico and how Donald Trump is seen today. Well, Jenkins was in his day in the 1940s and 50s when he was at the peak of his wealth and power and fame. He was the American that Mexico, the Mexicans most loved to hate. Uh, He was routinely criticised in the newspapers. There were political cartoons that would appear in papers and in in magazines. Politicians would make speeches about him uh, in order to shore up their bases or or advertise their nationalistic or or leftist credentials. Um, I think there are certain parallels to Donald Trump in the sense that today in in the contemporary political landscape in Mexico, to criticize Donald Trump is again to to advertise your nationalistic credentials. Uh, And with the presidential election coming up next year, there is a danger that certain candidates uh, may uh, use not only an anti-Trump discourse, but an anti-American discourse to capture more votes. So Steve, do you think that's something that we might begin to see with candidates like the leftist veteran Andres Manuel López Obrador is running for president next year. Do you think he might start trying to use anti-American sentiment as a way to win votes ahead of the election? That could definitely be on the cards as a political strategy, but whether that would be a very effective tactic is another question. People in Mexico are 
pretty used to awful politicians. So I don't know how much Trump has stirred up new feelings of anger. Yeah, I think most Mexicans would like to to think that people from other countries wouldn't judge them by, by Peña Nieto or by their own leaders. So they probably are willing to accept that someone like Donald Trump doesn't necessarily represent the, the vast majority of Americans. We haven't really heard of any anti-American attacks or any kind of instances of people's houses being sprayed with graffiti or anything like that. I haven't seen much about No, I, I don't think I've heard of a single case of that happening, at least here in Guadalajara. Um, so there's always going to be a rivalry with neighbour countries, but whether it, this is, has you know spilled over into any kind of hatred or whether there's enough of this anti-American sentiment in the air for a politician to really take advantage of it and ride it out on the way to the presidency, that's something that's not yet clear. I think with López Obrador that what he does more is kind of appeal to this sense of nationalism. So when it comes to things like oil, which has always been nationalised in Amer- in Mexico and, and the, the current government's been kind of opening it up to American investors, he's kind of used that as a a way to, to differentiate himself from the government. But it's more about Mexican control of things rather than necessarily a kind of anti-Americanism. And in that sense, I think there he does differ from people like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, who seem to be much more focused on US imperial projects and, and kind of using them to define what they're not. Lopez Obrador mainly talks about the political parties, the PRI and, and the PAN. That was something that he kept going on about. We went to a rally of his in, in Guadalajara a couple of weeks ago and he was uh, quite repetitive in his uh, denouncing the, the main political opposition or main political parties in, in Mexico. Um, what did you think of, of his speech overall, Steve? Well, we left early, so <laughs> if that's any indicator. It was quite repetitive and it was not very engaging. He didn't really seem to be engaging the crowd in any particular way. Were you surprised at the size of the the crowd? Because it wasn't in the main square in Guadalajara where you get a lot of demonstrations or political rallies. It was in quite a small, narrow square. And most of the supporters there weren't actually from Guadalajara. They were people that had been bussed in from smaller towns around the state of Jalisco. Do you think that uh, suggests that he might struggle to win over popular support in, in big cities in the, in the election? Well, we know that he's popular in Mexico City, but whether he's popular in... Well, we know he's not popular in Guadalajara and Monterrey. So I don't know whether that will be a particular obstacle, but definitely Guadalajara is not a López Obrador-loving town. No, it's a bit more conservative, isn't it, still? I mean, it's, it's become a little bit more liberal in the last few years, I think, but it's still... I don't know many people here that are big López Obrador fans. Was there anything particularly memorable that he said from the speech? Um, to be honest, the thing that I probably remember this speech for was just as we were leaving, there were a few hundred naked cyclists all just rocked up and tried to get through, but they were blocked off by the, the people that were attending the the, uh, the rally, and we had absolutely no idea what was going on, just loads of naked people cycling around. Yeah, never a dull moment in Mexico. Andrew Paxman's book, Jenkins of Mexico, is published by the Oxford University Press. It's available at Amazon and other retailers in hardback and ebook formats. We highly recommend you go out and get a copy. You've been listening to Viva Mexico, a podcast from Guadalajara bringing you news and views on Mexico in the age of Trump. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to our channels on iTunes and SoundCloud. And if you have any questions or comments, you can message us on Twitter 
at Viva Mex Podcast.